0: I mean, we are on our final payment of last winter's power bills. Well, energy poverty really is a situation where a person or a community doesn't have access to sufficient energy or affordable energy.
1: You gotta choose between food, uh, medication and a roof over your head before so you got to juggle what's more important
2: clearly the the level of poverty including energy poverty varies across the planet and it is and will remain one of the biggest challenges facing mankind uh, in in my view
3: welcome to beyond research podcast brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. Typically, when we hear of developments in clean energy and clean technology, it's about the planet. Better managing emissions so that we can address the global climate crisis. This is a really important discussion. How we harness the power of these new approaches to be more responsible global citizens. But there is more to this story. We should also be thinking about energy poverty, and how advancements in technology can be made accessible to support people today. As the threats of climate change persist, governments across the globe are facing increasing pressures to lower emissions and increase their use of renewable energy sources. An area of clean technology that is becoming crucial to society's collective efforts to establish new, cleaner energy sources is advancements in energy storage. How do we store the energy from the sun, from wind, or water? This question of energy storage has implications beyond national emission rates. It could also be key to reducing rates of energy poverty and improving access to energy overall. In this episode, we will speak with Canada-based researchers who specialize in the field of energy storage. Each are contributing to advancements in technology that could drastically change how we consume energy at the international, community, and household level. Innovation in this area is critical, because if we envision a future where our energy is derived from clean sources, we need those sources to be accessible to everyday people, which means they also need to become more affordable.
1: Energy poverty is when uh, more than 10% of, of a household's income has to go just to their energy needs. Um, and energy needs is everything from gas to electricity to propane, things like that. This is David Mitchell,
3: mayor of Bridgewater, a small town on the south shore of Nova Scotia. For reference, the average Canadian household spends 3% of their income on energy for their home and means of transportation. A few years ago, the town executed their own research study and found that over 40% of their population was facing energy poverty. That's approximately two out of every five residents.
1: We're not unique. So you can just pick that up and deposit that stat on almost every community across this country in just the day-to-day where people have to make that choice of, um, can I heat my home this month or put gas in the car? Or if I put gas in the car, can I feed my family? Because it's not something you can always see. So it's not as easy as driving by a certain house or driving in a certain area and going, oh, it's them. We've spoken to people uh, like, so a nurse, for example, that's that's a, a good job. It, it pays a good, uh, I would say more than a living wage, but that individual is a single mom and struggling. And so she has to make that choice every month. So it's not um, it's not as obvious as a lot of people think.
3: Two years ago, The town of Bridgewater won the Smart Cities Challenge, a pan-Canadian competition that empowers communities to improve the lives of their residents. With the funding, they've committed themselves to lifting the town out of energy poverty through its initiative, Energize Bridgewater, with the starting goal of reducing the energy poverty rate to 20% by 2025. As part of this plan, the town is focused on engaging community members to take advantage of local financing programs that will allow residents to upgrade their homes with more energy efficient products. And though it's been well received, there are some
1: drawbacks. It's that community, that uptake of the program. So that's our biggest challenge. So not everyone can have a heat pump, for example. So we we tend to default to, oh, listen, we'll just put heat pumps in every house. Well, you can't actually do that in every house. And so I think the biggest barrier for people is, it's just the initial cost. of. We know that the data that comes from a Nest thermostat, for example, is that you'll lower your energy costs because it starts to learn um, the cycle of heating and cooling in your house, and so it will save you money. But most people aren't going to spend hundreds of dollars on a thermostat. Most people, uh, especially if you're living in energy poverty, th- these are barriers. You're, you're just never going to get into there. So if you, can, if you can have advancements in technology that make it more accessible, both in terms of the availability and the price, then you're starting to really make headway into, into who can participate in that energy saving.
3: The town recognizes that placing the onus on homeowners and residents to either reduce or revamp their energy consumption at the household level is not enough to address energy poverty long term. That's why their vision goes beyond the home and into the community where they hope to build a local energy economy that allows the town to meet its own energy needs through increased energy efficiency and access to renewable sources from which the town will be able to earn an income. The end goal is to be able to decide the cost, quality and availability of their energy and keep money circulating within the community.
1: There's a whole bunch of components that are really exciting. So we won the Smart Cities Challenge two years ago in that $5 million prize, but what that's done now is change the plan from what was just, you know, we're going to work on home energy retrofits in phase one. Then we're going to do maybe some community energy in phase two. It will be starting with things like energy generation. So um, whether it's solar fields or if we can, we have a tidal river in our communities. If we're talking about generating uh, power through renewables, of course, uh, if we use solar, for example, solar is only ever generated during the day. And so battery storage is key to that. Smoothing out the curve of the windy days for wind power and the sunny days for sun Uh, for solar generation with the days that are dark and dreary and and the nights, So um, battery storage is absolutely an integral part of all this.
3: Over the next 29 years, the town of Bridgewater will be looking for mechanisms to create a local energy economy so that by 2050 they can meet its ultimate target of reducing the town's energy costs by more than 80%.
1: I think this is one of those issues that, that the onus is on all of us. We all have a role to play um to me uh, it's not any different than when we look across the country at the housing crisis so we have an affordable housing crisis from coast to coast to coast and we don't sit there and say well it's the problem of the person who doesn't have affordable housing we can't also just say well it's the government's problem to make more housing um so energy poverty and the advancements in technology and energy storage all of that um is it's all our problem um, because it's, it affects residents, it affects taxpayers, it, ex- it affects government and government policy. And we need people to advance um, all of this research, especially in, in clean energy, clean tech, and storage, to get people out of energy poverty because it does impact the local economy. So they're all tied together.
3: Over recent decades, there's been a boom in clean technology. Wind farms, hydro, solar panels, are all commonly known forms of renewable energy. So why don't towns like Bridgewater simply implement these types of green tech at a local level? As David has suggested, just because the technology exists doesn't mean it's readily accessible. Part of making them more accessible is making them more affordable. And part of making them more affordable is to make them more effective. One way to make them more effective is to prove the capacity for energy storage.
0: Well, the the absolutely cheapest way to get electricity these days is to install solar or wind and couple it with battery storage.
3: This is Dr. Jeff Dunn, a professor of physics and atmospheric science at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the Canada Research Chair for Tesla. He is a world-leading researcher in battery storage and has a large research group of about twenty-five to thirty people working on lithium-ion battery improvements.
0: I began doing research in lithium battery work back in 1978. Uh, There was no such thing as a lithium ion battery at that time. But people had realized that you could make rechargeable batteries based on lithium. And I joined a research group at the University of British Columbia as a graduate student, uh, working on some of the very first rechargeable lithium batteries, you know, ever, ever made in the world.
3: Dr. Don has committed his career to battery research because of the potential to change how people, communities, and industry produce, store, and consume energy.
0: Lithium-ion batteries have a uh, very unique chemistry that allows very high energy density. It means you can store a lot of energy per unit volume or per unit weight. And they have a very long lifetime measured in, in years and even decades for that matter. So that means those attributes mean they're very well suited for electric vehicles and very well suited for large-scale energy storage to store energy from the sun or the wind and deliver it back again when those sources are not available. Solar and wind now can be installed at a cheaper cost than coal. And so that's really quite enabling. You don't have to set up an electricity grid from a distant location. You can install your solar panels locally, put in the battery storage, and you can power a a remote community.
3: As Dr. Dan is pointing out, just because we have technology that allows us to harness energy from the sun or wind, we cannot rely on them alone to satisfy our energy needs. The wind is not always blowing and the sun is not always shining. So what can we do in these instances? Jeff says we should store it with battery technology. Some communities are already doing this.
0: There's a good example of an energy storage project in Elmsdale. There's a a wind turbine out in a place called Hardwood Lands, and it is connected to a community there. And when the wind is not blowing, uh, electricity has to be sent to the community through the transmission lines and coming from coal. So what's happened is Nova Scotia Power has installed a number of so-called Tesla Power Pack Energy storage units, so that energy from the wind turbine can be stored right there and delivered back to the community when the wind is not blowing. You know, there's uh, some really good examples of um, very large-scale energy storage facilities going in, in in Canada. There's one in Northern Ontario that's being in, implemented by a company called NR Store. It will store one gigawatt hour of electricity. So to give you a feeling for that, the average daily use of electricity in Nova Scotia is about 20 gigawatt hours. So this energy storage facility could store enough energy to power Nova Scotia, well, 1 of Nova Scotia for a day. So it's quite huge.
3: Obviously, this technology sounds like a dream, an option for communities to store renewable energy and move away from fossil fuels. So why doesn't every community come equipped with a power pack? This is the exact issue Dr. Dan is hoping to resolve in his research.
0: Somehow we have to, we have to move away from fossil fuels and uh, move into these green, green sources of energy. I don't think there's any way around it. So first of all, what I'd like to see is uh, the use of fossil fuels more or less eliminated. That would be, that would be a fantastic outcome. And that would mean we would be collecting most of our energy from the sun and the wind. And to do so, we'd have to store a lot. The production facilities for lithium ion batteries around the world at this moment are absolutely maxed out, supplying demand for vehicles and power tools and cell phones and energy storage products. The production capacity of lithium ion cells needs to increase about a hundredfold to really meet the demands needed for the energy storage uh, application. And it's happening, you know, the so-called gigafactories are being built all over the world to really ramp up lithium-ion battery production. So that's one issue, right? The other issue is, is cost, like you continue to reduce the cost of lithium-ion batteries so that they become more affordable in electric vehicles and also for energy storage projects. So cost reduction is a, is a big deal. The other thing that goes hand in hand with cost reduction is improvement in the lifetime. Because if you install an energy storage facility and it needs to be re- replaced after 10 years, well, compare that to an energy storage facility where it doesn't need to be replaced until after 40 years. So improving the lifetime really is equivalent to reducing the cost when you think about the overall uh, lifetime of the project. So we work on both of these topics, uh, cost reduction and lifetime improvement.
3: Jeff says that the traditional electrode material in lithium ion batteries has been cobalt.
0: And cobalt is quite rare. It's very expensive. So we spent a number of years working on figuring out how to make equivalent electrode materials that didn't incorporate cobalt. So that's been a big a big emphasis for us, and I think has turned out to be pretty successful.
3: Though Dr. Dahn acknowledges the cost of lithium ion batteries are quite a lot for the average consumer, at least for now, he's confident that continued research can change that.
0: Our work is uh, contributing to improved energy storage products and also to improve batteries for electric vehicles. and lifetime of energy storage products is important because they're very expensive so you would like them to last many 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 decades and i think at this moment it's becoming clear that the lithium-ion battery can certainly work in an energy storage system for well over 20 years and uh, you know i i can see 40 50 down the down the pipeline there's thousands and thousands of researchers around the world that are involved in advanced battery work. And they're not only doing lithium ion battery work, they're also doing other types of advanced batteries, sodium ion batteries or zinc manganese dioxide rechargeable batteries or whatever the case may be. But overall, the amount of activity in this area is is unbelievably huge. And there's many, many very strong scientists across our country doing fantastic work.
3: Look into the future as Dr. Darn and his team, along with other researchers around the world, continue to improve the lifetime and cost of battery storage technology. The hope is that consumer costs will continue to decline, enabling the number of installations in households, businesses, and community-based energy systems to increase rapidly. That way, towns like Bridgewater will be better able to create a local energy economy and support household energy upgrades for all residents. As Dr. Don alluded to, the area of energy storage research goes beyond lithium-ion batteries. In fact, it goes beyond battery work altogether. Just as Tesla has altered how we think about driving, some researchers are exploring new technologies that could alter our conception of energy production and how it relates to the average household consumer. So I really think the future is
2: is in these sorts of decentralized energy sources that include solar and coming up with the, uh, the new fuels of the future.
3: This is Dr. Michael Freund, also located at Dalhousie University. Dr. Freund is a professor of chemistry, the Harry Sharif Chair of Chemical Research and the director of the Clean Technologies Institute. Similar to Dr. Dahn, Dr. Freund's research focus is on improving storage capacity for renewable forms of energy.
2: Well, I think there's, you know, the future is just going to be fascinating because there's this big drive to net zero carbon emission. And so there's a lot of pressure and opportunities for developing new technologies, um, both for energy producers and users. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of opportunities for individuals you know, municip- municipalities as well as at the federal level. Um, I really look at it as kind of analogous to the, to the Internet in the sense that uh, the creation of this decentralized communication structure has really impacted everything from how individuals interact to how transnational organizations function. And so if we can do something similar on the energy front, you can imagine that, you know, people have more control over their own energy production and use. And uh, it's very different than what we see now, which is a very centralized, you know, grid-based system.
3: Dr. Freund and his team are actively researching ways to give everyday citizens more control over their energy production. A significant part of his work is in the area of solar fuel production. That's right, solar fuels. We asked Dr. Freund to break down what increased solar fuel production could mean for communities.
2: The name kind of says it all. It's a a fuel that's made directly from sunlight. Uh, When you think about it, fossil fuels come from the sun, uh, which drove the proliferation of plants and animals uh, whose fossilized remains over the course of millions of years have become the oil and and, uh, coal that we extract. It's the the same thing with biofuels. It involves sun-driven plant growth followed by processing and breaking down the sugars into a fuel like ethanol. Uh, in these cases, photosynthesis is converting the sun energy, the light energy, into uh, chemical energy in the form of, of uh, bonds like carbon dioxide to ethanol. Uh, we can then extract the energy by converting it back, by breaking up those bonds. Um, but Unfortunately, the, the process is very inefficient, uh, since it's just a small percentage of the, the solar energy, let's say, hitting a, a field of plants ends up in the form of ethanol. Uh, there can be added complications with the uh, you know, competition with the food supply uh, if we use plants. So the idea of solar fuel is to, to do what plants do, uh, but more directly. Uh, convert sunlight into something like hydrogen or uh,
3: an alcohol-based fuel from CO2. What Dr Freund is describing is the act and method of converting sunlight energy into chemical energy. Well I mean the
2: holy grail in the solar fuels area is to come up with a material that will absorb light and then basically generate a fuel. So uh, imagine a membrane that very much like a leaf does, it absorbs light, but instead of generating sugars and you know, what the plants do, let's say it would generate methanol that would just weep off of the sheet plastic into a,
3: a can that you could then use as a fuel. Coming up with that specific holy grail material is the goal of Dr. Freund's research. It's not that these technologies don't exist, but just like in Dr. Dan's battery research, cost is still an issue. So that's the focus of of our research is on um, low-cost,
2: abundant materials to develop the technology. Like we already have really good materials and catalysts that can create solar fuels. The issue is uh, the cost and the relative abundance. Uh, It's low, so it would be hard to be deployable everywhere and at a reasonable cost. So our focus has been on uh, these kind of earth-abundant materials. Uh, we also focused on, on hydrogen generation because water is everywhere. And if you have a an efficient way to convert sunlight into a chemical fuel like hydrogen, uh, then that can be done anywhere as long as you've got the technology that can be deployed there. And the, you have the added benefit that when you use hydrogen, uh, to generate energy, it produces you know pure clean water, which is a great byproduct, and so it has the added benefit of, uh, especially in developing countries, to be a source of um, clean water.
3: When asked about how this technology compares to energy storage research, like that of Dr. Dan, Dr. Freund had this to say:
2: I think the the next generation is the the uh, the solar fuels because the you know the the one thing that that's uh, the fuel has relative to let's say a battery is um, the energy density that can be stored with a battery it has a certain mass whether it's charged or not right and so uh, in the case of a fuel, it's actually consumed in, in the process. that's why you know people run with uh, diesel generators because the energy density in the fuel is just so high. And uh, so you can move a, around a lot of energy
3: uh, in a smaller amount of, of weight or volume. Dr. Freund believes solar fields could help communities in Canada and beyond move away from centralized energy and possibly give residents more control over their own energy production and consumption. Well, in Nova Scotia and Canada, we live in a cold climate.
2: We we live in a very large country. Uh, this requires more energy for heating and for transportation, uh, which can be a significant fraction of a family's budget. Uh, we have an excellent power grid, however, it's you know it has to be maintained over large areas in extreme climates. So all of these factors contribute to costs in developing countries. Of course, without you know a major power grid. Uh, they have the added burden of just simple access to energy sources. Uh, so uh, installation of, of major power grids in, in developing countries can, can be prohibitive, and so that's a major challenge.
3: This is the link between new energy technology, the design of electrical systems, or the grid and cost.
2: It will be uh, possible to create mini grids in remote communities that can drive down the cost of building, you know, large infrastructure and maintenance over long distances. So I really think the future is is in these sorts of decentralized energy sources that include solar. Um, so the hope is to develop similar technologies around energy that will really be disruptive and allow remote communities, as well as developing countries to, to get, you know, efficient access to clean, reliable, sustainable energy
3: sources. Here in Canada, Dr. Freund is optimistic that an energy revolution isn't that far off.
2: We're really fortunate in Canada to have a range of sustainable energy sources, including wind, solar, tidal and, and hydro. Uh, we're also very fortunate to have a strong economy, and a government, and government leadership that prioritizes investment in R&D that will address a lot of these challenges. Uh, within Canada, we're just you know we're really well situated to to be part of the the whole revolution in, in energy. We've got companies like Ballard, which is a, a very large-scale hydrogen-based energy uh, generation uh, company. We have. Uh, other companies like New Flyer—they're developing uh, um, hydrogen fuel cell-based uh, buses for public transportation. We've got uh, emerging companies like uh, Planetary Hydrogen, which is combining carbon capture with clean hydrogen generation. So there's a lot of a lot of things going on in Canada, and we're just really well situated to uh, to help tr- you know drive this uh, technology as it moves forward and to uh, integrated into environments where it's really going to be cost-effective, especially remote and rural communities.
3: So, though we may not have solar fuel dripping from our rooftops or power packs hooked up to every wind turbine installation just yet, it is clear that as scientists like Dr. Dahn and Dr. Freund continue to push boundaries in the area of clean tech and energy storage we will get closer to a future where our energy is derived from clean sources, using technology that is both accessible, reliable, and affordable to homeowners, business owners, and both urban and remote communities around the globe. That way we're lifting up our planet, we're also lifting up our people, not only reducing climate emission rates, but the rate of energy
1: poverty too. So for sure, I can see a path for Bridgewater to reduce its energy poverty. I see there's such a light at the end of the tunnel. If there's a willingness, then it can be done. Uh, Because if we don't, then we're gonna stall. And if we stall, then uh, I'm gonna have to explain to my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren why their life expectancy will begin to reduce, why their quality of life will begin to reduce. So if we don't make progress in, in, clean energy and battery storage and all those things that get us off of these giant uh, carbon emitting sources of energy then you know the clock is is we know the clock is ticking on the whole planet and so um it's not a we should try it's a we have to get there
3: thank you for listening to beyond research brought to you by research nova scotia we just wanted to say a very special thanks to Dr. Jeff Dunn, Professor of Physics and Atmospheric Science and the Canada Research Chair for Tesla, Dr. Michael Freund, the Director of the Clean Technologies Research Institute, and David Mitchell, the Mayor of Bridgewater. For more information, visit researchns.ca. My name is Rhys Waters, and we'll see you next time.
0: Podstarter.